นโมทัสสะบุคคะตัวระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคะตัวระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคะตัวระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดามังสังฆังนามัสสะparticularly useful, also have observed often in others that the lack of agility, uh, the uh, conditioned tendency to cling to fixed positions, uh, produces a sort of rigidity of attention. This, uh, when this rigidity of attention becomes chronic, well, it's Turns into a kind of rigor mortis, and and uh, life starts to die off, and that's definitely unfortunate. And mm. we all have uh, sincere aspirations for truly understanding, or truly realizing what the Buddha was talking about. We're not here because we want to merely believe in something. We Have confidence that realization uh, is possible, and however, we also know that uh, the Buddha regularly referred to the habit of clinging as as the uh, cause of or the obstruction mm-hmm. to awakening to realization. Uh, so it seems to me, on all sorts of levels, and that this. Inclination to cling and causes a sort of rigidity and gets in the way. So we'd like to consider that this evening and some of the ways in which we can recognize it and hopefully, in recognizing it, uh, arrive at uh, letting go and becoming more agile. With agility comes the ability to accord with life, mm-hmm. to move with life. It's not, life is not so stressful, not such a struggle. Mm-hmm. Perspective of holding to fixed positions tends to be a very energy extravagant way of living. I remember some time ago reading an article. Uh, it might have been in well, some Nature magazine, maybe Resurgence or something similar, about how a particular type of geese, when they flew in formation, presumably when they were migrating, they had this way of never looking in the direction that they were going. 
I guess the scientists had somehow tracked the way that birds set their navigation system and they found out that the birds are looking to the left, looking to the right, looking to the left, looking to the right, looking to the left, looking to the right. They never look in the direction they're going and yet they end up where they need to be. And that somehow that really struck me as an interesting metaphor for the spiritual life. So often seems to be the case that when we come across an idea or an ideal, we want to strive towards this goal. We don't know the goal, but we've heard enough about it for it to strike up an image in our hearts, in our minds, and we aspire towards this goal. But we easily fixate on that idea of the goal. Now we, we think we're heading in the direction of the goal. What are you doing in your spiritual practice? I'm striving for the realization of nirvana or striving to overcome anger or you know, whatever it is we're striving for. Uh, whereas in actual fact, in terms of practice, sometimes what's called for is not looking at the goal. After all said and done, the idea of the goal we're not at the goal, so all we've got is an idea, like a fantasy of the goal. It's not here. We don't have access to the reality of the goal. So although the goal can give us an orientation and certainly is functional and useful, for sure, we're fortunate that we have teachings by those who've realized the goal of complete awakening, complete unobstructed relationship with reality, uh, that there have been and presumably are such characters around is very fortunate and, and they give us the teachings which can inspire us. But if we stay fixated on that idea of the goal, we can trip up, we can stumble very easily because we're not really here, we're not all here. We're not actually doing what we're doing. A big part of us is out there fantasizing. Yes, it's useful to have an image of the goal, but also to have enough agility of attention to know that we can let go of the goal. We can let go of our ideas of the goal. Yeah. Or we set ourselves in that direction, we can let go of it and come back to this. Mm. Now, when we've been getting off on the idea of the goal and the enthusiasm that clinging to the idea of the goal gives us uh, the energy and encouragement and that, that gives us it can feel like we're letting go of that and being with this when this may not be particularly inspiring or uplifting can be a real loss um, so it is worth registering mm. in our hearts and our minds uh, this clinging to the idea of the goal is not going to take us to where we need to be the goal's got a function, but it's not something to cling to. It's like the Buddha image here. Yeah. It's great we've got such a beautiful Buddha image. It, as a symbol, it can be inspiring and uplifting. And we, we can do our pujas here, and it serves a purpose. But if somebody steals our Buddha image, it doesn't mean to say the Buddha disappears. Yeah. 
If we're clinging to the Buddha image, then that creates an obstruction. So having prepared ourselves with this suggestion, the need for agility can prove very beneficial when we come across obstructions who are not necessarily just going to be hammering away at them all the time. Because if we don't have agility, that's what tends to happen. Maybe we've got a particular meditation technique or, or an approach that's worked and if we don't have agility then we keep trying to apply the same technique. Mm-hmm. That's, that's like treating all the plants in the garden in the same way. I mean, Some of those shrubs out there in the garden, the thing to do is to prune them in the autumn mm-hmm. and then come spring... Yeah, they really blossom. Other shrubs, you, doesn't help them to prune them in the autumn. You want to prune them in the spring. Yeah. Some you prune in the spring and they're not going to flower. You need to know yeah. what works, basically. Yeah. So how do we know what works? Well, nobody else can really tell us what works. It's through trial and error, through experimentation, through studying our own heart and mind. But to really be able to study our own heart and mind and learn, we do need agility. In my first year as a monk when I was living with Ajahn Tate in a monastery called Wat Hien Mak Pang near Nong Kai in northeast Thailand, I, I still remember a period where I was suffering terribly. Well, actually, lots of periods when I was suffering terribly. It was very hard going. But there's one period where I was suffering over, if I remember correctly, I was suffering over this always wanting approval. You know, I couldn't speak the Thai language very well. And, and yet I found that I was always wanting to be reassured that I was doing it right. I was, it was my first range retreat as a monk and all these rules and practices and Thai etiquette and you know, if you don't get it right you know, sometimes with Thai etiquette they just stop talking to you, you know, it's not like you know, in other cultures where they'll, they'll tell you in no uncertain terms you're not getting it right that's not the, the Thai way <laughs> so I wanted reassurance I wanted to realise that what I was looking for was this approval and of course they didn't approve of my looking for approval you know seeking praise all the time was quite unbecoming for was it 23 24 years old at the time and a pretty kind of adolescent attitude and really wanted to overcome the seeking praise seeking approval and and uh, what worked Actually, eventually, somehow, I must have had enough agility of attention for my contemplations to look at the opposite. Instead of watching, wanting approval, I noticed how much I was afraid of disapproval. And that's very different. 
wanting approval, wanting praise, and being afraid of disapproval or fear of blame are very different. But they're very connected. They're actually very much the same thing. Just like, you know, you can look at the front of your hand and it looks like one thing. It's a palm of your hand. You know, you've got these lines on it and fingerprints and thumbprints and like this. And, um, take a photograph of it. That's the front of your hand. That's the palm, yeah. And then you turn it over and you look at the back of the hand. You know, these veins and wrinkles and fingernails. Don't have fingernails on the front of the hand. But it's still the hand. And that was very useful to recognize that you cling to one, you cling to desire, you actually generate the other. And looking at one doesn't mean to say that that's going to help letting go. Maybe we need to have the agility to shift to look at the opposite. In this case, instead of looking at the desire for praise, to look at the fear of blame. That was a very helpful lesson and, and an inspiration to develop that agility of attention that's not always looking at the same thing. You know, of course, we know our praiseworthy determination is and concentration. And, you know. However, for a lot of us, I think the kind of education that we were subjected to means that we perhaps overly emphasize willful determination and a contracted form of focus. Yes, the scriptures talk about a concentrated mind, but what sort of concentration is it? Is it a contracted, closed-off sort of concentration or is it an expanded, open, sensitive, alive, inclusive concentration? Very different. So I think for many of us, we have the conditioned tendency to believe that clinging to views and opinions is somehow virtuous. Certainly a lot of what we build our personalities on. My view, my opinion. This is me and this is what I think. And the culture that we live in, it's not praised to be uncertain and hesitant about expressing a view. In school, you generally praise to having clear, fixed views on things. And unfortunately, if we are not cautioned with wisdom, then we don't see the limitation of having fixed views. To have a view is fine, but how do we have it? We can hold it, but how do we hold it? We're not talking about not having views or not having opinions or not having feelings. Having them, but to have them with, the Buddha would talk about mindfulness and and wisdom. Satipanya, truth discerning awareness. Satipanya, when there's truth discerning awareness operating, then it's quite possible to have all sorts of views and opinions and experience all sorts of feelings and for them all to be supporting our investigation of Dhamma. So if we don't have agility, if what we have is a conditioned rigidity, then it turns even the good views we have, like views on the benefits of spiritual training and giving ourselves to spiritual exercises, 
Our views may be right views or good views, conventionally speaking. However, if we're clinging to those views, then they don't really serve our aspiration for awakening, for freedom. So the, this fact of agility is not just praise and blame, but what the Buddha taught about the eight worldly winds or the eight worldly dhammas. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, honour and insignificance. All beings are blown around by these eight worldly winds, including fully awakened beings, including the Buddha. Everybody who ever lived is blown around by the eight worldly winds. Praise and blame, gain and loss, or gain and loss sometimes referred to as success and failure, pleasure and pain, honour and insignificance. So these eight dynamics are something really worth establishing in our minds and as worthy of reflection. And so if we find ourselves struggling, for instance, with always seeking praise, or maybe we find ourselves always afraid of criticism, always afraid we're going to be criticised by somebody, and we keep trying to solve that, maybe what we need to do is turn around and look at the opposite, look at how much we're actually desiring praise and we're afraid to look at it. We didn't want to admit it. Or success and failure. Certainly that's a phenomena that I see a lot of in, in monasteries. You know, a lot of people come to monasteries very high achievers, very determined to succeed. And, and that's great. Up to a point. However, the... Uh, commitment and interest and enthusiasm in succeeding in the spiritual quest and, uh, if we're not careful generates the opposite the fear of failure uh, that particular dynamic uh, attachment to success and, and failure and wanting success and afraid of failure again something that most of us have been programmed with in the very early stage of life and too much enthusiasm on the part of those who are teaching us can give us a distorted feeling of a need to always succeed. We can't always succeed. There's no way we can always succeed. We also need to learn to fail. There's no way we can always be praised. Sometimes we're going to be criticised. That verse in the Dhammapada the Buddha said, never has it been, nor is it now, nor will it ever be the case that anybody is always only praised. Everybody, including the Buddha himself, was blamed and criticised for some pretty awful things. Pleasure and pain, likewise. There's no way we're going to get through life without experiencing both, no matter how much of a miserable so-and-so we might be. There will be times when we'll experience pleasure. Or if we're somebody who really, really are trying very hard to get as much pleasure out of life as we can, sooner or later always will be the case that we will experience pain. If we have agility, then we can transit both dynamics and learn from both and see how we cling to one, we actually create the other. Honour and significance, or fame and insignificance is another one. 
longing to be famous, longing to be popular, longing to be well known, and then desperately afraid that nobody's going to recognize us. It's a big part of the youth culture these days, I'm told, where I guess as a result of something to do with social media and television, this idea that you know, anybody and everybody can become famous and popular if they want to be. But it really doesn't work like that. You know, just because we want something, you know, like we want to be successful, we may really, really want to be successful, but sometimes, for a great variety of reasons, there'll be times when we're not successful. You know. Sometimes we might think we really deserve honour and, and appreciation and respect and what we get is just a load of criticism and no appreciation at all. And a wise approach is to have the agility of attention which means that we can transit all of these experiences and, and learn from all of them and not cling to one and create this terrible tension. So having the agility of attention to be able to shift according to what's needed. I'm reminded of something that I, I heard or read that Professor Jung, a psychoanalyst, taught. And that was, you know, for those who seek enlightenment, it's not about pursuing the radiance that's called for. It's about getting to know ourselves in the shadows. Mm. We don't want to go into the darkness of our hearts, of our minds. Yeah. We feel drawn towards the light. But moths are drawn towards the light and it doesn't necessarily do them any good. And likewise, in the spiritual journey, we, you know, feel drawn towards the light and you come across some great radiant teacher and you commit yourself to following this radiant teacher and forget to exercise you know, mindfulness and wise reflection, you can end up in a lot of trouble. So the right kind of effort involves agility, being able to change gear according to what's needed. I've spoken before about the, uh, the benefit of being able to recognize how a different approach is called for, depending on the intensity of that which we encounter. Sometimes we can just be flowing through life and everything's just falling into place beautifully, marvelously. Everything's just flowing. It's great. Other times, nothing seems to be falling into place. Just one obstruction after another, one misunderstanding after another. Who knows why it is this way? Mm. Bound to be lots of factors involved. But surely what matters is that we're able to accord with what life gives us. Accord with it in the sense of not creating undue suffering out of it and, and learning what there is to, 
to learn from it. If things are not flowing and we some obstruction appears and you know, sometimes what's called for is just the determination to not be pulled into it, to not give it any attention. That alone can be enough. It's what I referred to before is, is cutting through obstructions. It's cutting through obstructions, seeing through obstructions and burning through obstructions. You know, I found it helpful to have a clear sense in my own mind that when obstructions appear, when difficulties arise, yeah. what sort of approach is called for? Well, yes, the first approach is just don't give it any attention. And, and sometimes that's enough, it disappears. But I've met people who, well, one fellow in particular I remember who, these days he's a senior monk in one of our monasteries, and I remember when he was either a junior monk or an anagarika, and he was telling me about his meditation and how he didn't seem to have any problem with obstructions. They just, he would just look at them and they would disappear. Whatever came up, he'd just look at it and it would disappear. And, and it might seem like that, but that doesn't mean to say that they're really disappearing. Again, sometimes a, a willful concentration is such that you, know, you look at something and force it into unawareness, but we don't realize that's what we're doing. In other words, we're denying or repressing. We're not withholding attention and the obstruction simply disappears. We're applying a forceful kind of attention, which means we push it into unawareness. That can happen. How do we know what's going on? We can't be sure. So we ready ourselves with agility of attention. We're, we wait, we're ready. And if something that we thought had been dealt with comes back again, keeps coming back again, keeps coming back again, well, we realize that withholding attention is not sufficient. We need to engage our ability to contemplate. Yeah. The Buddha referred to as wise reflection or wise contemplation. Yeah. Yeah. For instance, in formal meditation, this holding attention on the meditation object, holding attention, holding attention, refusing to let our mind wander and holding it becomes uh, some occasions it can become so tangled that, and so rigid uh, that we make ourselves even more stressed and letting go is not happening but if we have a fixed view on what meditation is and think that just clinging to the meditation object and concentrating harder is the solution to all obstructions well you know, we might compound obstructedness and now sometimes what's called for is to think about the nature of our obstruction. And there again we need an agility of attention to know what sort of thinking. If we're thinking in the way that means we're being pulled into the vortex of mental activity and sucked into conditioned thinking, that's not, that's not wise reflection, that's not contemplation. That's mental proliferation. That's the opposite of the idea that we you know, we just have to concentrate on the meditation object and you know, it's going to disappear. Somewhere in between those two, you know, absolutely not think about anything and just being pulled around by our conditioned thinking, somewhere in between that is wise reflection, where there's enough steadiness 
of attention and enough openness and sensitivity, enough embodied awareness to be able to hold this condition, whatever it is, feel it, examine it and ask questions that are born out of our genuine interest. Not something we read in a book, something that somebody else told us was going to solve the problem, but an organic inquiry into what's going on here. Why is this mood so persistent? If we ask aggressively, why is this mood so persistent? That doesn't do it. Maybe the mood feels hurt and offended and runs away. We're too friendly to the mood and it takes us over. Is the right quality of relationship, the right degree of unobstructed awareness, where it means we can we can receive the mood, receive the impression with interest and inquire. Until seeing through you know, insight precipitates out of that dilemma. And so the dilemma itself is not an obstruction, it's actually the teaching. It can appear like a dilemma in the beginning because we're not getting what we want, we're not getting our peaceful state of mind. But this is functional frustration. There's two types of frustration in life, functional frustration and dysfunctional frustration. Dysfunctional frustration is where we just complain about not getting what we want and become more rigid and distract ourselves with our addictions. Functional frustration is where we refuse to distract ourselves and we welcome this dilemma, this predicament. Realize that there's, there's great energy in this dilemma. It's not free energy serving our liberation at the moment. It's contracted, it's obstructed, it feels suffering. But we don't judge it as wrong. We get interested in it. What's really going on here? And sometimes it means we need the agility to get very discursive. For instance, a lot of people who embark on the spiritual journey and think that they're going to be able to overcome this contraction of selfhood the Buddha referred to as Atta and build up great discipline and great commitment and great enthusiasm and great keenness on the Buddha's teaching on Anatta and pick up a meditation tool like inquiring into who who was doing this who was meditating who was walking? Who was eating? It can be a very effective path of inquiry. However, in the process of making such inquiries and in effect deconstructing the self-image, you can come across periods of intensity that no way had they anticipated. And the self is not just a cute idea and particularly for us with all our education and our disembodied state the many selves that we entertain even in a single day very complex interacting interconnected 
pattern and very tangled and very complex and not necessarily easy to see through, see beyond. Or even not necessarily easy to get a handle on. So in the process of applying the spiritual disciplines, uh, it's quite possible that we come across experiences of feeling obstructed or periods of intensity which mean we've got to expand our attention a lot to accommodate. That might mean even contemplating other disciplines. It might require looking into psychological understandings of what's happening here. Particularly early life trauma that people sadly regularly suffer and become so lodged into the self-image, the self-structure that as the practice starts to bite and starts to take hold all that energy that has previously been locked away and that denied pain suddenly gets released it can create huge disruption and we need a little bit of conventional psychological understanding before we can get a handle on that to hold to the fixed view that if it's not mentioned in the party canon then it's not dhamma that's a that's a very initial sort of approach to practice surely it's what works that's dhamma it's what works if it's within the precepts and if it leads to letting go then it's dhamma maybe it involves coming back into the body a lot of modern people city dwellers become so disembodied that they just think that they're a walking head living in this abstract world and and so thoroughly out of balance that sometimes what's called for is a commitment to some physical discipline going swimming five days a week jogging tai chi qigong something that brings us back into the physical form before we can become re-established in balance that means we can accommodate the intensity that the obstruction that we've encountered challenges us with so the stage, the approach of seeing through and not just holding on to our meditation object but willing to exercise the agility of attention to consider other approaches and then sometimes the third approach is I've referred to as burning through which means that nothing works and we don't want to give up so what do we do? Nothing. We just endure and that's also believe it or not completely valid approach from one perspective that seems like application how can we give up striving Mm -hmm. this is not giving up striving this is another way of striving as you're probably aware the, the Buddha held up patient endurance as the ultimate form of ascetic practice one of the ultimate 
means of transformation. So if we can't cut through or see through or feel like we're making any progress, that doesn't mean to say that we're not practicing. It means that we're at that place where we can refer to it as gestation. I remember as a child watching caterpillars turn into chrysalises. I don't know if you have monarch butterflies in this country. In New Zealand we would put caterpillars, these little creepy crawly green things, onto a swan plant. And these little creepy crawly green things would be eating away, nibbling away, consuming this swan plant, leaf by leaf, stalk by stalk. And then one day it just (laughs) turned upside down and turned into chrysalis, became this kind of dead thing. Well, apparently dead. It's just kind of nothing happening. It's not a caterpillar anymore. But presumably at some stage I was told, uh, well, it's going to become a butterfly. So you watch it, you watch it, you watch it. When's this dumb chrysalis going to become a butterfly? What's the point of a chrysalis? (laughs) Caterpillars are interesting, though. Butterflies are interesting. Chrysalises are just this kind of dead thing hanging there, upside down off the branch. Well, once you see that there's a right time, and as we learn some of life's lessons, we realise that timing matters. One day that chrysalis opens up and this beautiful very different thing appears. It's not just a slug anymore. It's a this amazing monarch butterfly. And you get all these monarch butterflies flying around. But when they're in the chrysalis phase, it wasn't that impressive, really. And likewise, our practice doesn't feel that impressive when we're gestating, when we're enduring when we're getting cooked and it can often feel like getting cooked can be a lot of heat but again if we have the agility of attention we won't misjudge these different stages of practice interest will sustain us interest and the gradually accumulating understanding that the right kind of effort to be made at the right time is very much supported by developing this agility of attention. And thank you very much this evening for your attention.